0: Okay. Hello, everybody. Welcome to the LSE. My name is Richard Davis. I'm a fellow here. And we're very lucky today to have Daniel Susskind, who's going to talk to us about his new book, A World Without Work. Uh, it's a fascinating read, and it's a really prescient um, topic. Just in terms of housekeeping, I just wanted to let everyone know that the plan is to record this session, uh, and to produce a podcast of it. Uh, this doesn't always work due to technical constraints, but that is the plan. Um, so there'll be t- t- some time for questions at the end um, uh, w- where you can get your views across, and those will feature in the podcast. Daniel is a fellow at Balliol College, Oxford, uh, and this is his kind of his second book. I think he's going to explain that to us, but it's really his first sole-authored book, And having recently done my first book myself, I can tell you it's it's quite a feat. It's a fantastic read, and so let's all welcome Daniel Tillessi.
1: Great. Well, thank you very much for that warm introduction. Great pleasure to be with you this afternoon uh, to share some ideas with you from my new book, Uh, A World Without Work. Uh, And what I want to do in the next 30, 35 minutes or so are share four important themes with you from that book. The first relates to the capabilities of machines uh, and why it is that I think economists have tended to underestimate uh, the capabilities of machines. I then want to say a little bit about the idea of technological unemployment and how I think about it and various distinctions I make in the book. I then want to set out the three problems that I think we're likely to face in the 21st century as a result of the technological changes that are taking place. And then finally, I want to close on a note of optimism to explain why in spite of these problems, I'm still uh, optimistic uh, about the future. So first, machine capabilities. So what are the tasks of driving a car making a medical diagnosis, and identifying a bird at a fleeting glimpse have in common. Well, these are all tasks that until very recently, leading economists thought couldn't readily be automated. And yet today, all of them can be. You know, almost all major car manufacturers have driverless car programs. There's countless systems that can diagnose medical problems, and there's even an app developed by the Cornell Laboratory of Ornithology, uh, which if you take a photo of a bird, it'll tell you what species it is. So in, in my work, I argue that this wasn't simply a case of bad luck on the part of economists. They were wrong, and the reason why they were wrong is very important for thinking about machine capabilities. They were relying on a mistaken assumption about machine capabilities and in particular they were relying on the belief that machines must copy the way that human beings think and reason in order to outperform them. So when these economists were trying to determine which tasks machines could or could not do they imagined that the only way to automate a task was to sit down with a human being get them to explain to you how it was they performed that task, and then try and write a set of instructions based on that human explanation for a machine to follow. Now, this particular view was very popular in artificial intelligence at at 1.2, and I know this personally because my dad, who was uh, my co-author in writing a previous book, The Future of the Professions, Uh, in fact, wrote his his doctorate on artificial intelligence and the law back in the 1980s at Oxford. And he was really part of the vanguard. So he, in fact, co-developed the first ever commercially available AI system uh, in the law. This was, in fact, a home screen design for that system. A few sniggers there. Uh, My dad assures me this was a cool screen design uh, in the 1980s. Never been entirely convinced of that. I love this. They published it in the form of two floppy disks. <laughs> time when floppy disks genuinely were still floppy. And essentially what they did together was adopt the same approach as the economists. Sit down with a lawyer, get them to explain to you how it was they solved the legal problem, and then you try to and then they tried to build a system based on that human explanation. For others, to navigate, for, the, for others to navigate through. Essentially what they did was they built a gigantic decision tree. The decision tree had about 4 million branches through it that my dad and his colleagues in the computing, uh, computer science laboratory manually, painstakingly crafted together. So the point here is that economists didn't pluck their view of machine capabilities out of thin air. They were closely following a view that had been dominant in artificial Uh, intelligence for quite a long time this belief again that machines that building a machine to perform a given task meant observing how human beings perform that same task and copying them these traditional AI researchers in whose footsteps the economists were following were what I call purists they were closely observing intelligent human beings and trying to build machines in their image and they did this in various ways. Some tried to actually replicate the physical structure of the human brain. Others tried a more psychological approach and tried to copy the thinking and the reasoning processes that human beings appeared to be engaged in. And a third approach was to try and draw out the actual rules uh, that human beings seemed to follow um, when they were performing a task. And this was the view that economists adopted. And so based on this view of machine capabilities, Economists argued that if human beings could readily explain how they performed a task, could readily articulate the rules that they followed, then those tasks were routine, and those could be automated. Because you could write some instructions based on that human explanation. Otherwise, for tasks where human beings couldn't explain themselves, those tasks were thought to be non-routine, and those were out of reach of machines. This distinction might seem a little academic, but just think how widespread actually I think it is today, not only in economics, but everywhere. Think how often you hear people say that machines can only perform tasks that are predictable or uh, repetitive, rules-based, or well-defined. You know, these are all different words that we use for the word routine. And those three tasks that I mentioned before, those are all classic cases of non-routine tasks. So, you know, sit down with a doctor and ask her how she makes a medical diagnosis. And she might be able to give you a few rules of thumb, but ultimately she'd struggle. She'd say things like, it requires creativity, instinct, intuition, judgment. In short, she'd probably struggle to articulate exactly how it is she makes a medical diagnosis. And that was the reason... Why economists thought things like that couldn't be automated. If a human being cannot articulate how they perform a particular task, where on earth do we begin, they worried, in writing a set of instructions for a machine to follow. I think 30 years ago, this view was right. The argument that I make in the book is that today it's looking shaky, and I think in the future it's simply going to be wrong. Advances in processing power, data storage capability and algorithm design, particularly in the world of machine learning, mean that this routine versus non-routine distinction that we so often use, I think is diminishingly meaningful, diminishingly useful. So take the task of medical diagnosis, just to see what I'm getting at here. Just a few, uh, or relatively recently, a team of researchers at Stanford announced the development of a system which, if you give it a photo of a freckle, it will tell you as accurately as leading dermatologists whether or not that freckle is cancerous. So how does it work? It's not trying to copy the judgment of a human doctor. It knows, it understands absolutely nothing about medicine at all. Instead, it's got a database of, I think it's about 129,450 past cases, and it's running what's essentially a pattern recognition algorithm through those cases, hunting for similarities between them and the particular photo of the troubling lesion in question that you've given it. It's performing the task in an unhuman way, based on the analysis of more possible cases than any human doctor could hope to review in their lifetime. It no longer matters when trying to automate the task of medical diagnosis that a human doctor probably couldn't articulate exactly how it is they make a diagnosis. Now I think there's some of us who really dwell upon the fact that these machines are increasingly not built in our image Um, Take IBM's Watson, the computer system which, as many of you will know, rose to fame in 2011 when it went on the US quiz show Jeopardy and it beat the two human champions at Jeopardy What I love about this is that the day after Watson won on Jeopardy The Wall Street Journal ran a piece by the great philosopher John Searle with the title, Watson Doesn't Know It Won on Jeopardy. (laughs) Right? And it's brilliant. That's completely true. You know, Watson didn't let out a cry of excitement, uh, didn't call up its parents to say what a good job it had done, didn't want to go down to the pub for a proverbial drink. The system wasn't trying to copy the way that those human contestants thought or reasoned, but it no longer mattered. It still outperformed them. So this Watson victory was a practical victory, but it was also really an ideological triumph as well. When my dad was working on AI back in the 80s, most AI researchers were purists. Again, closely observing human beings acting intelligently and trying to build machines like them. But that was not how Watson was designed. Its creators didn't set out to copy the anatomy ...of a human player, the reasoning they engaged in or the rules that they appeared to follow... ...they were pragmatists instead, not purists... ...taking a task that might have required intelligence when performed by a human being... ...and building a machine to perform it in a fundamentally different way. And what I think we see now is a generation of systems crafted, built in this pragmatist spirit... crafted to function very, very differently from human beings, judged not by how they perform a task, but by how well they perform a task. And in this book, uh, and and this, I argue, in in the book is the mistake that I think many economists have made in thinking about machine capabilities. This is why so many of us, uh, I think, have systematically underestimated the capabilities of machines. You know, the view of machine capabilities which that routine versus non-routine distinction relied upon was a purist one. Now again this belief that machines have to copy the rules that we follow. But given the technological progress that's taking place this is no longer the case. You know today's most capable sh- machines simply do not ride on the coattails of human intelligence as they had to in the past and in crafting that routine versus non routine distinction, I think economists were on the wrong side of what I call the pragmatist revolution, drawing on ideas about machine capabilities that simply no longer held. And this shift, I think, from purism to pragmatism raises the question if this routine versus non routine distinction is no longer useful, what should replace it? How else should we think about machine capabilities? And I think lots of recent scholarly work and books and articles and reports have tried to identify the new limits of machine capabilities. And they've used a variety of different approaches. The obvious problem, though, with marking out the limits of machines is that any conclusions you reach are going to become outdated pretty quickly. And this is what we see, you know, time and time again. You know, those who spend time trying to identify these boundaries are like the proverbial painters of the fourth rail bridge in Scotland a bridge so long they supposedly had to start repainting it as soon as they got to the end because by then the paint would have started to peel you know spend time trying to come up with a new account of what it is that machines are able to do today and by the time you finish my bet is that you'll probably have to start again and readjust so the argument that I make in the book is that actually a better way to think about technology is to stop trying to identify specific limits. You know, it's difficult to say exactly what it is that machines are going to be able to do in the future, but what I do think is pretty certain is that machines are going to be able to do more than they can today. You know, Over time, machines are gradually, but pretty relentlessly, going to encroach further and further into the realm of tasks performed by human beings. And this, I think, is a more valuable way uh, to think about technology. And I call this far more general trend task encroachment. And when you look at the three main capabilities that we as human beings draw on in the work that we do, whether it's manual capabilities, those that involve dealing with the physical world, cognitive capabilities, our abilities to think and reason, or our effective capabilities, our capacity for feeling and emotion, I think what you see are machines gradually encroaching on more and more, of ta- more, and more tasks that require each of these capabilities. And, and, and that's what I try and set out in the book. And I think it is this process of task encroachment uh, that really has quite important implications for thinking about the future of work. And that's what I want to turn to now, the idea of technological unemployment. In the book, I distinguish between two types of technological unemployment. One, the first, is what I call frictional technological unemployment. Here, there's still lots of work to be done. The challenge is that not all workers are able to reach out and take it up. And there are three main reasons I think we might see In fact, we already see frictional technological unemployment. The first is what I call the skills mismatch. This is the first reason work might sit out of reach. Displaced workers simply don't have the skills required for the new work created by technological progress. And I think this is probably the most familiar reason uh, for frictional technological unemployment, so I won't say any more about it. The second reason is what I call place mismatch, where displaced workers don't live in the same place uh, that new work is created, and that might, might sound relatively trivial, but it's important to remember that remember, you know, back in the early days of the internet, um, there was a moment when it seemed like these sorts of worries about location, you know, would simply no longer matter. You know, people spoke about the death of distance uh, and how the world is flat. But what we actually see today, in thinking about looking for work, the place where you live matters more than ever. The third type of mismatch that I think is responsible for this frictional technological unemployment is what I call the identity mismatch. And this is perhaps less familiar. And this is where displaced workers have an identity rooted in a particular sort of work and are willing to stay unemployed in order to protect that identity. So think of adult men, for instance, in the US, displaced from manufacturing roles... Uh, by new technologies. Now, there's quite an interesting argument that says many of them would prefer not to work at all than to take up so-called pink-collar work. Now, it's a really unfortunate term, but the term is designed to capture the fact that many of the roles currently out of reach of automation are disproportionately done by women. So, teaching. Uh, 97.7% of preschool and kindergarten teachers in the US, for instance, are women. 92.2% of nurses, 82.5% of social workers. And so those are the sorts of mismatches that I think are responsible for frictional technological unemployment, where there's work to be done, but people aren't able to take it up. And I think many of us tend to be comfortable with this idea of frictional technological unemployment. We can readily picture a future where there's lots of work to be done, uh, but for these sorts of reasons, people aren't able to, to do that work. But as we move through the 21st century, I think the more controversial argument I make in the book is that we might see the emergence of a second type of technological unemployment. One where there's simply not enough work to be done, full stop. And I call this structural technological unemployment, distinct from frictional. And I think this is a a less comfortable idea uh, for many people. The starting point for thinking about whether something like this might ever be be possible, a world where there's simply not enough well-paid work for people to do, has to be the fact, I think, that ever since modern economic growth began, people have worried about the economic harm caused by new technologies, and those anxieties have broadly turned out to be misplaced. Now, if we look back over the last few hundred years, there's actually very little evidence to support their primary fear, that technological progress would create large pools of permanently displaced workers. And the reason for this is that when we look back at what actually happened in economic history, what we see is that the harmful effect of technological change on work, the effect that really preoccupied our anxious ancestors, that turns out to only be half the story. You know, Yes, machines took the place of human beings at performing certain tasks and certain activities, but they didn't just substitute for human beings. They also complemented them at other tasks that had not yet been automated, raising the demand for people to do those activities instead. Throughout history, there have in fact been two fundamental forces at play. A harmful substituting force, but also a helpful complementing force. And in the clash between these two fundamental forces, our ancestors tended to pick the wrong winner. They time and again, they either neglected the complementing force altogether, or mistakenly, they imagined that that substituting force would somehow overwhelm it. So that, I think, is the context in which we have to think about the future of work, that people have worried in the past and, and been wrong for these reasons. So given this context and looking to the future, I think there can be little doubt that as this process of task encroachment that I described continues, that that harmful substituting force is going to grow stronger. Workers are going to be displaced from a wider range of tasks and activities than ever before. The question then follows. Why can we not simply rely on that complementing force to overcome that effect as it has done for the last 300 years? That seems to me to be the big question we have to engage with when thinking about the future of work? And the answer, I think, and the argument that I make in the book is that task encroachment actually also has a second pernicious effect. It not only strengthens that substituting force, but I think it also is going to weaken that complementing force that has helped us in the past as well. So to see what I mean by this, I think it's useful to distinguish between the various ways in which that complementing force has actually helped us uh, as workers in the past. Um, now, the most obvious way, I think, that the complementing force has helped workers is by making them more productive or more efficient at certain tasks. So, you know, a taxi driver can use a satnav system, for instance, to follow unfamiliar roads, or an architect can use computer-assisted design software to design more complex buildings. In the future, new technologies in that sort of way are no doubt going to make particular workers more productive at certain tasks. But my worry is that this is only going to help, continue to help workers, so long as they remain better placed to do those tasks than a machine. But as task encroachment continues, that becomes less and less likely for more and more tasks. So, you know, take SatNav systems again. Today, they make it easier for taxi drivers to navigate on unfamiliar roads, making them better behind the wheel. But this is only going to be the case so long as human beings are better placed than machines to drive a vehicle from A to B. In the coming years, this may no longer be the case. Software may drive cars more efficiently and safely than us, and at that point, it will simply no longer matter how productive human beings are behind the wheel with or without a sat-nav. These machines will simply do it instead. I think chess provides another illustration of the spirit of my worry about this productivity effect and how it might fade in the future. So for some time, Gary Kasparov has celebrated a phenomenon uh, that he calls Centaur chess, uh, which involves a human being and a machine working together as a team. Uh, And Kasparov's thought was that such a combination would beat any chess playing computer uh, acting alone. Human plus machine is always better than just machine. And this in a sense is the productivity effect in action, isn't it? New technologies making human beings better at what it is that they do. The problem though is that Kasparov's Centaur has effectively now been decapitated. 2017, Google took uh, AlphaGo Zero, the Go playing machine, uh, that trains itself, tweaked it so it could play other board games and gave it the rules of chess. They called the new system Alpha Zero, And after a, only a day of self-training it was able to beat the best existing chess playing computer in a 100 game match without losing a single game. After that trouncing it's hard I think to see what sort of role human beings might have alongside a machine like that. As the economist Tyler Cowen put it, the human now adds absolutely nothing to man-machine chess-playing teams. And I think there's a deeper lesson here. Kasparov's experience in chess led him to declare that human plus machine partnerships are the winning formula not only in chess but across the entire economy. And I think this is a view that's held by many others as well, and you hear it all the time, human plus machine. But alpha, Alpha Zero's victory, I think, shows that that's wrong. Human plus machine is stronger only as long as the machine in any partnership cannot do what it is that human beings are bringing to the table. But as machines become more capable, the range of contributions made by human beings diminishes. Until partnerships like these eventually just dissolve, and the human in human plus machine, I worry, becomes redundant. So, alongside the productivity effect, there's also a second, less direct uh, way that that complementing force has helped human workers in the past. Uh, so, very crudely, if we think of the economy as a pie, uh, as economists like to do, technological progress has made the pie far bigger as productivity increases, incomes rise, and demand in an economy grows. The British pie, for instance, is more than 100 times the size it was, uh, 100 times the size today than it it was 300 years ago. So I call this the bigger pie effect. And again, it's very intuitive to see how growth like this might have helped workers. Yes, some tasks might be automated and lost to machines, but as the economy expands and demand for goods and services rises along with it, demand will also rise for all the tasks that have to be done to produce all those new goods and services. And these may include tasks that haven't yet been automated, and so displaced workers can find work involving those tasks instead. And you see the sort of bigger pie effect uh, being appealed to by lots of economists when we're thinking about the future of work. So Larry Summers, when reflecting about being a a student at MIT, a graduate student, said back then the stupid people thought that automation was going to make all the jobs go away, but the smart people understood that there was more produced. There would be more income and therefore would be more demand. David Autor, probably the leading economist thinking about the impact of technology on, the, on work at the moment, argues that people are unduly pessimistic. As people get wealthier they tend to consume more, so that also creates demand. Uh, Kenneth Arrow, Another giant of the field. The economy does find other jobs for workers. When wealth is created, people spend their money on something. In the future, economies will no doubt continue to grow. Incomes are going to be larger, I expect, than ever before. And demand for goods, in the spirit of those sorts of observations, is going to soar. Yet I worry that we cannot necessarily rely on this to bolster the demand for the work of human beings as it has done in the past. Why? Because just as with the productivity effect, that bigger pie effect will only help if people, rather than machines, remain better placed to do whatever tasks have to be done to produce all those new goods. And as task encroachment continues again i worry that that becomes less and less likely and i think we can already catch a glimpse of this sort of phenomenon at work in particular corners of the economy so think about uk agriculture since 1860 you know this particular part of the british pie has grown dramatically over the last century and a half but it has not created more work for people to do british uh, british, british agriculture now produces about five times as much Uh, as it did back in 1860, and yet it only requires a tenth of the number of workers to do it. It's not just a story about agriculture. Think about UK manufacturing, exactly the same, a sector that now produces about 150% more than it did back in 1948, and yet requires 60% fewer workers to do it. Now, these stories are, of course, only unfolding in particular corners of the economy, but what I think they capture is the essence of the problem with that bigger pie effect. Rising incomes may lead to rising demand for goods and services, but that does not necessarily also mean rising demand for the work of human beings. Finally, I think there's also a third important way that the complementing force has helped human beings in the past. Technological progress has not only made our pie bigger, but has also changed the pie too. So if you think of the British economy again, not only is it more than 100 times the size it was 300 years ago. But the output that we produce and the way in which it's produced have completely transformed. So 500 years ago, the economy was largely made up of farms. 300 years ago, factories. Today, of offices. This I call the changing pie effect. And again, I think it's very intuitive to see how these sorts of changes might have helped displaced workers. At a certain moment some tasks might be automated and lost to machines but as the economy changes over time demand will rise for other tasks elsewhere in the economy and some of these newly in-demand activities may again not yet have been automated and so displaced workers can find jobs doing them instead and again I think we can see lots of economists appealing to this sort of idea so David Dorn technological progress will generate new products and services that raise national income and increase overall demand for labour in the economy. Joe Mulcair, the future will surely bring new products that are currently barely imagined but will be viewed as necessities by the citizens of 2050 or 2080. And again, I think in the future it's inevitable that the economic pie is going to change, perhaps in ways that are unimaginable, or inconceivable to us today. But in exactly the same way, my worry is that as task encroachment continues, it becomes more and more likely that machines rather than human beings will be a better place to do whatever new tasks have to be done. And I think if we look at newer parts of economic life today, we might worry that something like this has already started to unfold. So if you go back to 1964, the most valuable company in the United States back then was AT&T with 758,611 employees. Fast forward to 2018, though, the largest company was Apple, with only 132,000 employees. 2019, it was Microsoft, with only 131,000. More generally, uh, there's research suggesting that in the year 2000, new industries created in the first decade of the 21st century accounted for just 0.5% of total US employment. So I think, hopefully you'll be able to detect a common thread running through the arguments and the ideas that I've just shared, which is that most of the time, I think when we talk about the future of work and the stories that we tell and in the models that we all build, we tend to imagine that human beings are special. We realize that as our economies grow and change, the demand for tasks and activities to produce everything is going to grow and change as well. But I think all too often, we take it for granted that people will remain the best choice or will remain best placed to perform many of those tasks. We imagine that when human beings become more productive at a task, then they'll be better placed than a machine to perform it. That when the economic pie gets bigger, human beings will be better placed to perform those newly in demand tasks, that when the economic pie changes, human beings will be better placed to carry out whatever new tasks have to be done. And I think until now, this has been a safe bet. Uh, My fear, though, is that as this process of task encroachment continues through the 21st century, and machines just keep on taking more and more tasks out of the hands of human beings, these sorts of assumptions might turn out to be wrong. And this, I think, is how captures why I think we might find ourselves in a world with less work. As time goes on, machines continue to become more capable, taking on tasks that once fell to human beings. That harmful substituting force continues to displace workers in the familiar way. And for a time, that helpful complementing force is going to continue to raise the demand for these displaced workers elsewhere, and this, I think, is the challenge for now, in the 2020s and the 2030s, the challenge is one of frictional technological unemployment, how we make sure people are able to do the work that has to be done. But look further afield, and as task encroachment goes on and on, and more and more tasks fall to machines, that helpful complementing force, I fear, might fade away and be weakened as well. Human beings will find themselves retreating to an ever-shrinking set of tasks, And there's no reason to think, there's no economic law that says that there must be enough demand for those tasks to keep everyone who wants it in well-paid employment. And that setting, our challenge, becomes one of structural technological unemployment. The world of work then comes to an end, not with a big bang, the sort of thing you might see um, in, in, in some commentary about the future of work, but instead a withering, a sort of withering in the demand for human beings as that substituting force gradually overruns the complementing force and the balance between the two no longer tips in favor of us as it has until now. So I think it's worth, in thinking about the problems that this is going to present us with, to be very clear that what I describe in the book is not some technological big bang after which lots of us wake up and find ourselves without work because the robots have taken all the jobs i simply don't think that's going to happen you know work is going to remain for a very long time to come but what i do think and what i am trying to describe is that how as we move through the 21st century and technological progress just continues its relentless advance i think there's a real risk that more and more people might find that they're not able to make the sorts of economic contributions to society that they might have hoped to make in the 20th century. And it's this, perhaps less dramatic, but I don't think any less significant challenge that presents us with three problems. And let me just say very quickly what those problems are. The first is an economic problem. Fundamentally, I think of the challenge that we face as being a challenge of inequality. I don't think it's a coincidence that today worries about economic inequality are rising at the same time as worries about automation are intensifying. These two problems, inequality and technological unemployment, are very closely related. You know, today, the labor market is the main way that we share out economic prosperity in society. Most people's jobs are their main, if not their only, source of income. The vast inequalities that we already see around us today show that this approach is already creaking. Some people are getting far more for their efforts in the labor market than others. Technological unemployment, in my view, is just a more extreme version of that same story, but one that ends where some people receive nothing at all. So I see technological unemployment as a distributional challenge, an inequality challenge. How do we share out material prosperity in society when our traditional way of doing so, paying people for the work that they do, is less effective than in the past? And the argument that I make in the book is that I see the only response here being our larger role for the state in taking on some of the responsibility for sharing out prosperity in society. The second problem actually has very little to do with economics at all, and it's the problem of power. In the future, I think our lives are likely to become dominated, increasingly dominated, by a small number of large technology companies who are responsible for developing all these systems and machines. The argument that I make, though, is that in the 20th century our worry might have been the economic power of large corporations, their profits, the prices, market concentration, and things like that. But I think in the 21st century, our worry is going to be far more about their political power, about their impact on things like liberty and democracy and social justice. Just one example, take Facebook. Our worries about Facebook, some people are worried about the economics of Facebook, but I think more generally people are worried about the political effects of Facebook, that Russia were able to buy ads on the platform in the 2016 presidential election, that they allow advertisers, it's said, to intentionally target ads by race, gender, and religion, Uh, that in a study of over 3,000 anti-refugee attacks in Germany, researchers found that regions with higher Facebook usage uh, experienced significantly more attacks. Now these sorts of worries are not about economics, they're worries about politics, and that I think is going to be our concern increasingly in the 21st century. The final problem, and again, I don't think it has much to do with economics, is the one of meaning, the challenge of finding meaning in life. It's often said that work isn't simply a means to a wage, but it's also a source of purpose as well. And if that's right, then the challenge of technological change isn't simply that it's going to hollow out the labor market, but it might also hollow out the sense of meaning and direction that many people have in life, too. And I spend a lot of time in the book thinking about this challenge and how we might rise to it. Finally, though, I want to close on a note of optimism. Why is it that in spite of all these problems and challenges, I nevertheless remain optimistic? Because the book is fundamentally an optimistic one. And I think the reason is simple, which is this, that in decades to come, technological progress is likely to solve the economic problem that has dominated humanity until now. So again, if we think of the economy as a pie, really the traditional economic challenge has been, how do we make that pie large enough for everyone to live on? So at the turn of the first century AD, if you had taken the global economic pie and divided it up into equal slices for everyone in the world, everyone would have received just a few hundred dollars, uh, a few hundred of today's dollars a year. Most people lived on or around the poverty line. And if you were to roll forward 1,000 years from then, roughly the same was true. But over the last few hundred years, economic growth has soared. Uh, and this growth, of course, was driven largely by technological progress. Economic pies around the world, as a result, have become far, far bigger. Now, today, GDP per capita, the value of those individual slices, is already about $10,720 a year. As J.K. Galbraith put it uh, so lyrically, I think, man has, put it like this, man has escaped for the moment the poverty which was for so long his all-embracing fate. In principle, those slices of the pie are now large enough for everyone to live on. And so technological unemployment, in a strange way, I think will be a symptom of that success. In the 21st century, technological progress is going to solve one problem, the question of how to make the pie large enough for everyone to live on. But as as I hope I've I've shown you, I think it's going to replace it with three others, these problems of inequality, problems of power, and problems of purpose. And clearly there's going to be huge disagreement about what we've got to do to meet these challenges, about how we should share out prosperity, constrain the power of big tech, and provide meaning in a world with less work. But these are, I think in the final analysis, far more attractive difficulties to have to grapple with than the one that haunted our ancestors for centuries, which was how to make that pie large enough in the first place. So I will finish there. Thank you very much for your attention and I look forward to now hearing some reflections and taking some questions as well. Thank you very much.
0: Thank you uh, very much, Daniel. That was absolutely fascinating. And I'm going to um, monopolize you for a a couple of minutes. After that, I'll open it up to the floor. So please get ready with your questions and put your hand up nice and high if you'd like to ask Daniel a question. First one, just to sort of personalize a bit more and tell us a bit more about you. Are you? I'm a bit sort of old school and slow to take on new technology. I've still got a Swatch watch, for example. Are you a kind of tech-embracing person? Do you use... Um, pieces of technology in your in your personal life in your working life that that's, that save you time and and potentially might have eradicated a job or cheapened a job in some sense i, I so i discriminate
1: I'm a, I'm a heavy use of particular technologies and um and try to avoid other ones so i'm now as of a week ago a proud owner of a fitbit which is um um I, I i was saying before it's sort of it's probably a technology I shouldn't have got. It's telling me how much sleep I'm not getting at the moment, which is a kind of. <laughs> um, but so, so I, um, I'm not a sort of blind advocate of
0: technologies, particular ones I like a lot and others okay. that. Yeah. Okay. Um, next, I, I love a chart. I'm an economist, I love a chart. Yes. Those charts you put up yeah. um, on agriculture and manufacturing. Yeah. Um, uh, it's not quite the way you described in the book. I think it was in the presentation you said, well, you know, these are small parts of the economy, but they're small parts of the economy now. And if we think about the sort of world of work as a sort of, as you're putting them up, as thinking of it as kind of a territory, and the robots have come onto it, and clearly, as your chart showed, in terms of agriculture, yeah. I mean, most human beings 300 years ago would have worked in the fields yeah. doing agriculture. That's, that's gone away. Manufacturing has gone away, and you know, as I'm sure many people in in the audience did, I sort of started to sort of tense up at that point. So I, I wanted to ask two questions yeah. on the limits of encroachment, mm. which is a big part of your book and your story. And one is: Are there areas where the human touch, the fact that a task is done by a human, yeah gives us some protection. I just think, I'm sure everyone in the audience has um, ideas from their own lives, but I can think of particular teachers um, that, I, that I've been taught by, um, uh, for car, to car mechanics. Many people use therapists, particular yeah. types of hairdresser Where I, I take your point, you make it very clearly in the book that it's a mistake now to think that these complex, uh, idiosyncratic tasks can't be done by humans. But are there some things that protect us because we actually like the fact that yeah, a human does it?
1: I think absolutely. And, and one of the things I'm, I'm really trying to do in the book is say that you know, these worries don't depend upon some extreme view that machines will do everything in the future. I think my conclusion holds so long as machines just keep on doing more and more and more. And I, you know, I'm very clear. I think you know, there's a, there are tasks that we might for some time, uh, might, be, you know, might not be possible to automate, just technically not feasible. Um, there might be tasks which are possible to automate, but not profitable to use the technologies. So you know, there are uh, laundry folding robots that can fold laundry far neater than me, but you know, the economics of it just doesn't make sense. You know, it's spending several thousand pounds on it. It's a silly idea. So the, the fact that a machine can do something doesn't necessarily mean it's profitable to use that machine. But the final thing is that there might be some tasks that we can automate, but we would prefer human beings to do nevertheless. And and this is the category I think you're getting at. And and these are things where we not only care about the outcome, but we also care about the process. So a trivial example, um, there was an outcry when it, it turned out that some Michelin star restaurants were using coffee capsule machines um, to make coffee diners were furious Uh, now they they weren't furious because the coffee tastes worse you know in fact in blind tests actually people often struggle to distinguish between capsule-based coffee and barista stuff What, what they were objecting to was that they that the craft was missing they wanted someone to you know open the bag and have the fresh breath of the coffee and you know the pad of the tamper and the whir and you know the craft of being a coffee they, and, and that was missing and they didn't like the fact that it had been automated away they valued the, the way in which the coffee was made and not simply how it mm-hmm. tasted and you know that's a prosaic example but it's true in perhaps education or healthcare where we don't care necessarily just how much someone achieves in school or what particular health co- outcome someone has but that the fact it's, uh, you know, a fellow human being doing the educating or somebody sitting, somebody animate sitting by the bedside. And I think so long as there are activities where we value the way in which things are done as well as the outcome itself, um, those tasks are going to be very hard to automate. And you, know, you walk into the Sistine Chapel and you look at the ceiling and you think, gosh, not only... Is that beautiful? But you also think, isn't it amazing a human being did that? And so long as we so long as we value human beings in that way, um, um, I think those tasks will prove very hard to automate. But, but but it is interesting. You know, this this general trend where we see these systems and machines performing tasks in very different ways means that we might be able to perform tasks that require, say, empathy from a human being, but, but do it differently. I mean, one example. I write in a book about Joseph Weizenbaum, who was one of the founding fathers of, of artificial intelligence, and he, he built a system in uh, the 1970s called Eliza, and you mentioned therapy, which is why I thought of it. And, and Eliza was designed to act like a psychoanalyst, so you'd sit down with Eliza. and he built it as a bit of a joke. You'd sit down with Eliza and it would say, "How are you feeling?" And you'd say, I'm feeling well. And it would say, are you really feeling well? And you'd have this kind of back and forth. It was basically parodying the sort of predictable way in which uh, a therapist might act. And anyway, he, so he did this. And he called his secretary in, who knew full well the sort of slightly playful spirit in which the thing had been built. She sat down with the system. And after, I think it was about two or three questions, turned round to Joseph and said, I'd like you to leave the room. Um, you know, she felt more comfortable with this machine than mm. she did with a human being and, and, and Weisemann writes in the book about how this deeply troubled him he thought that there was something as many of us do instinctively think that there's something intrinsically human to the sorts of interactions that we go to therapists for but actually the system suggested
0: it might not be the case. And that could potentially change over time as yeah. well with tastes. Okay, so but at least there are some areas, we think, where humans might still be the best choice. I, I, think, I, think, I think huge areas. Yeah. You know, and, yeah. but, but then a second sort of line of, of defense, um, uh, or, or maybe not defense, and that, that's kind of my question, and then I'll open it up. So there's some areas where we still might be the best. There's potentially a whole load of areas um, where we're just the cheapest. Mm. We're just the best choice in a, in a brutal economic sense yeah. because, because we're cheaper. Now, that's something you, you, you talk about in a big way, and it leads into one of your problems, inequality. Yeah. So I wondered if there are sort of two or three things when we look across history or we look at the moment where we can tell um, we're, we're at risk of becoming employed just for that reason. Yeah. Because, because, as you say, if you're employed solely because you're cheaper than the, the machine, you're not better, yeah. then you're at real risk of the kind of wage inequality problems. you about. Yeah. Well.
1: I mean, I think a great example of this is... Do you, do you remember how maybe 15, 20 years ago there were mechanical car washes everywhere with a sort of worrying Right. And yet today there are very few. And if you look at the numbers, the number of mechanical car washes has, has fallen through the floor. Now, the, the car wash association, the sort of... Uh, um, say that the reason for this is the accession of lots of Eastern European uh, countries, 2003, 2004, led to a large influx of um, workers who were willing to work at a very low wage. And in a sense, they displaced these machines. You know, What we have now today are car washes staffed by people. So how did they compete? They competed by undercutting on cost. And, and, and that's my i think one of the things we do that's quite unhelpful when we think about the future of work is we talk in terms of jobs alone we're obsessed with unemployment that's the that's the sort of metric that we all look at and we point to high unemployment we point to low unemployment figures around the world and say there's no problem here technology isn't having an impact on the labor market but but clearly a decline in the demand for labor doesn't just show up in the number of jobs but also the pay of the jobs the quality of the jobs the status of the jobs and I think you know it's possible that we we could um, if if we only think in terms of jobs we might miss the harmful effects that technology is already having on work today um, by just being too high a level.
0: Fascinating. Okay let's um, have some questions. Okay loads already so I'm gonna group them in three in case any overlap um so we'll start down here at the front in the middle please and then just i'll do it kind of by banks, so we don't have to wait for things so i will come to you so um one two and then three there Daniel, thank you very much for for a very interesting talk. Um, Obviously, what what your book raises um, is very much what also I think when your your previous book with you and your father is the relationship between income and and remuneration, um, and and also then also looking at the the sense of, um, I suppose, ownership of of these technologies. You know, and then you know, moving into into a sort of sense of of, of being a common good, and and even then moving to common ownership of these technologies as well. I just want if you can comment on that that. Mm. And then just behind you on the right, just this gentleman here with the scarf.
2: This is really a, probably a very quick observation, rather than a question. Um, I'm a computer programmer. But uh, despite that, uh, there's still an irony about the, uh, the way that Google have a machine which can beat anything and anybody at chess. Because it seems to me this misses the whole point of chess, which is a, it is a human activity. Uh, and, and so they've, this achievement by Google is, in effect, to my mind, the perfect metaphor for the draining of meaning from human existence which technology can threaten.
0: Okay. Uh, And then round, the gentleman at the end was hand really high. The premium on getting your hand high. (laughs) Thank
2: Thank you.
0: Can I ask my question? Sorry, where did that come from? As I said at the start, I'm going to do it by row to avoid time taking the thing around.
2: So thanks for that comment. Can I ask my question? Thanks, Daniel. Two questions. Uh, question first is about the accountability and how we perceive justice. When things go wrong, we look for someone to blame. And well, we talk about, you know, machine driving car. Let us say it's off, off in race. If the car, if that machine driving car knocked down someone, we look for someone to. Take the hits on in court, you know. We can't just uh, we can't just unplug the computer. That's the only thing we can do to you know to see accountability to a PC. I mean m- machine. I mean, can machine eventually takes you know accountability? And do we have to you know change our definition of how do how to redefine? Just and second question, I bring up to your point about you know. Uh, uh, effects of inequality and about, uh, you know, empathy is what human is skilled. And we see that, I want to say that, we do you see the bring the points that uh, we becomes, um, some human have to take the emotional hit. You know, you know for instance, we know that Facebook inc- employs a lot of those people to screen all those harmful content and they all become very depressed and suicidal or something. When we get to the point that, you know, some of those really unequal and disadvantaged people, they are left to take the hit of those emotional hits because they use their empathy to screen out all those bad things and nasty things that this world unfortunately generates more and more. Is that a way to look at the inequality side as well? Thank you.
0: Okay, thanks very much. So we had common ownership as a kind of defense to this um, income inequality problem. A bit of a point, but I guess it's a question, it's something you talk about, importantly, meaning. Threat to meaning, and then responsibility and accountability. You comment mm. on those.
1: The the accountability question is really interesting. The, the The story that immediately popped to mind was the early days of Google's driverless car when it was um, driving along the road um, in California and it was speeding and it was pulled over by the the Highway Patrol and the question was who does the ticket go to? Um, and I mean the, the the boring answer is that these these are new. And interesting and puzzling legal questions. And at least in this country, uh, they'll be worked out through the common law. There's just, there's just going to be lots of interesting and uh, novel cases where we're going to have to try and identify where the burden of responsibility lies. Um, I think the question of chess and meaning is very interesting. I mean, what, what jumped to mind, though, of course, was that um, if you think of someone like Magnus, Magnus Carlsen, even though a chess computer could beat him uh, at chess in the sense that um, uh, machines are better than human beings at the game, nevertheless, when he plays, you know, millions of people uh, go on online to watch him. Because that, it, it goes to the point that we were talking about that that's a good example of an activity where we don't just value the outcome itself, uh, namely... Um, um, who, who or what wins but also who's doing the winning and what's doing the winning and, 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 and that, I think that's, that's, a, that's a good example of that uh, that it's, it's how the game is played not simply the outcome itself I don't think in our working lives though necessarily there are um, I think if we're honest with ourselves many of the tasks and activities that we do in our lives don't really have that characteristic um, and, that, and that I suppose is one of the challenges in the book. The question of common ownership is very interesting um, the, as I said I think the big economic challenge in the 21st century is one of distribution. How do we share our income in society when our traditional way of doing so, paying people for the work that they do in the labour market is less effective and the response that I have is that if we can't rely on the labour market we need the state to take a larger role in doing it. Partly by sharing our income but also as you hint by also sharing our ownership in these increasingly valuable types of capital as well. It's so why I'm quite interested in things like uh, citizen wealth funds, the idea that the state might take a stake in some of these technologies on behalf of, 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 of the citizens who are affected by them. So I think, yeah, well taken.
0: Okay, let's have some more questions. Uh, at the end of the row, just behind the, the previous questioner on the left there,
3: Hi, thank you. Um, I've been working in the technology industry for the last 20 years and currently working actually on a program which looks at automating key activities within the workforce. So significant transformational change there. My question is broader though. Um, I'm really interested to to understand from you, do you see this as a form of liberation as well for humans? Um, If you look at the world of work, Um, Some of it's very value-add. A lot of it often isn't. Um, It's a lot of the work is surrounding, effectively, the means of production within offices as well. Um, And then the second thing is, if it is a liberation, is there an element of... Gender. So bringing it back to the point that the gentleman made earlier, the comment he made about hearing from women, I think from a female perspective, it's really interesting, the, the notion of how we're valued as humans in society and indeed the distribution of wealth. And I think is that going to be more of a challenge for a male identity?
0: Further up the row, on the right. Further up, further up there.